Morning, Grace Chapel. Yeah, so if you are in those ages, you can take off and you're going to have an amazing time. You really are. It's going to be fun, see? It's going to be awesome. So adults, you have to stay, all right? You have to stay here. It is good to see you today. If you're visiting with us, we are glad you are here. Um, tomorrow, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. And Kevin DeYoung has said recently, the simple, honest truth is that Bible-believing Orthodox Christians are not setting a spirit-infused example in how to talk about racial matters. He said that's the bad news. The good news is that no one else is setting a great example either, which means it's not too late for grace-filled, truth-loving followers of Jesus Christ to show to the world a still more excellent way in the way we live, in the way we talk, in the way we act with each other. And I'd like to add to what he has said there that it's not just how believers talk about racial matters, as important as those are. It's how we show a better way in all of our social interactions with whoever it is. In our work ethic, in the way we nurture and raise our children, the way that we love our neighbor more than ourselves. In the book of Daniel, which you all understand now is where we're going for the next at least 10 weeks, the book of Daniel is going to address head-on a better way, a more excellent way, God's way. The godly characters that you and I are going to meet in the book of Daniel are going to forge a faithful pathway. They're going to do it in the face of tremendous opposition. They're going to do it in the face of horrific, life-threatening peril. And they're going to remain faithful. This is the amazing account we get to go through. And get this, they're going to remain faithful after they have been completely removed from what is familiar, from what is comfortable and normal and safe and secure. Does it sound somewhat familiar? So Daniel, it's a well-known piece of Holy Spirit-inspired writing. Um, Ezekiel mentions Daniel twice. Jesus Christ speaks of Daniel as the writer, the author of this book. It's the real book. It really happened. He does it twice in the Gospels. And even more than that, in the New Testament, Daniel is referred to more than any other Old Testament book. Did you know that? Like, it's famous. It contains more fulfilled prophecies predicted events that actually happened already more than any other book in the entire Bible. So in many respects, this book that you and I are about to go through is the most comprehensive prophetic revelation in the entire Old Testament. It gives us a total view of world history from 605 B.C. with the Babylonian Empire right through to the second coming of Jesus Christ, date yet to be determined. We're not going to determine any dates today. Daniel provides the key to your and my overall view of what's coming down the road. What will the future look like? And Daniel's a key to understanding that, and it's essential in interpreting the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though possessing all of the qualities that I've just said, the most important thing about Daniel the most important thing is that he reveals the sovereignty and the power of God. And that's what you and I need. We need it every moment of every day, especially during 
trying, difficult times. And Daniel brings us that assurance, and he brings us that hope that God will fulfill his sovereign purposes. He's done it before. He's going to do it again, even today, in your life and in my life. And from Daniel and his three friends who we're going to actually meet today in chapter 1, we're going to learn the power of faith, and we're going to learn the power of commitment. So let's get into it. You ready? If you've got your Bibles, you're going to need them. We're not going to look at every single verse in every single chapter, but uh, most of them will be up on the screen. Chapter 1, it's about the face of a 15-year-old boy. A 15-year-old boy. Any of you 15 today? Yeah, we've got a couple. Okay, cool. All right, sweet. So this is about you. All right. The Old Testament's filled with men and women who you and I are supposed to imitate, could imitate, uh, certainly uh, grab our attention. You know, got guys like Joshua, you know, that amazing general that took the, the nation of Israel and uh, went through Palestine and conquered it for God. We got Joseph, who stood for God in the house of his employer, an Egyptian who didn't know God, Potiphar. We got Rahab, who simply believed that Israel's God was greater than her people's gods. While others crumbled under the pressure that was going around them, all these men and women stood tall. And Daniel's one of these people that we get to look at. As a young man, as I said, he's probably only around 14 or 15, his faith gave him the courage to remain true to his convictions about God. But we also, what's cool about Daniel is later in the book, as we get into it, we're going to get to see him uh, later as an old man, most likely in his mid-80s. And the same faith that he had when he was 15 was still sustaining him under the threat of being eaten by lions. It didn't happen when he was young. That happened when he was old. And we'll get to that story. So I encourage you, before we get into this, to, to read a chapter of Daniel before each time we get together. Do it before you get here, all right? It will benefit you. It will help you so much. Before we worship together, we're basically going chapter by chapter. So today we're doing chapter one. Next week we're doing... Chapter 2. Very good. You guys got it. Yeah. You're awake. And because I'm only going to f- focus on certain passages in each chapter that I think are really, really important for the days we live in. And I'm going to summarize all the rest. And the study guides that Ben mentioned that you can get online, they're in multiple places, and we email them out every week, uh, a link to get to them. Those study guides will help you get uh, dig deeper and meditate longer um, on these things that God has left for us to ponder and also um, to step up. Each of us needs to step up in the areas that God wants us to change. And there's always something. So, verses 1 and 2. I'm not going to read them. They're self-explanatory. Babylon, that nation-state that has just grown into one of the uh, largest empires in the world at this time, it annihilates Israel. And I use that word right, annihilates. This nation of Judah. There's only two tribes out of the 12 left by the time Babylon comes along. And these two tribes in Judah, um, um, one's Judah, one is Benjamin. These two tribes split from the other uh, 12, so, so, and the 10 were left, and those 10 are already gone. They've already been carted off and defeated by the Assyrians. But now they're annihilated. The two are annihilated by the Chaldeans, who are known as to us as the Babylonians, conquered completely. And we know from passages like Isaiah 39 and 2 Chronicles 24 that the people and their kings and their leaders sinned against God, and that's why they're in the situation they're in. 
according to the curses for disobedience of God's people. Curses that are recorded word for word in the book of Deuteronomy. Curses that the people, when they came into the land the first time, actually stood, one stood on one side of the valley, of, of, of the valley, they stood on the other side, and they yelled at each other. One yelled out the blessings, one yelled out the cursings. And, and they, they agreed at that moment that if they disobeyed God, these things would happen. Curses they saw Judah saw fulfilled in the ten tribes just a, a little over a hundred years before when they were carted off for doing sin against God. And according to these known curses, Judah is carted off to a foreign country and enslaved. And in verses 3 to 7, then, we find out that the Babylonians would take the young men, the ones that they hadn't slaughtered, uh, young men of noble birth who had a pretty good education at that point, and they would subject them to pagan training in their own country, especially in the capital of Babylon. So the time when we're, we're here now in, in Babylon, it's 605 B.C. Daniel and his three, three friends are part of the nobles and the royal families that were back in, in Jerusalem, and they're taken away as captives. And we know nothing about Daniel's family background, um, Apparently, he lived apart from his, they all lived apart from their families, if their families were even still alive. And perhaps the Babylonians had killed his parents. We don't know. That was pretty likely. There's a lot of slaughter going on. But King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, he apparently had an enlightened policy for his day. It's even an enlightened policy for our day, where he would collect, go around and collect the best minds in all the empire, all the, all the brightest and the, and the, and the most smart, and uh, he would collect them and he would put them into government service regardless of their national or ethnic origin. It really didn't matter. And we know from history that the education of these boys uh, by royal teachers in the royal court began around their 14th year, 14, 15, somewhere in there. And then after three years of indoctrination as a teenager, they were placed into to service for the kings at around age 17 or 18. So these are young guys. And Daniel and his three friends, so they're probably in their middle teens. And in verses 8 through 14, where I want to take a little bit of focus time right now, Daniel resolves to remain faithful to God. Fifteen years old. Torn away from his parents and his homeland, taken to a pagan place that is, everything is different. These are cruel taskmasters too. We know this from history. And we don't know how many other Jews or even Gentiles uh, from conquered nations were, part, were some of Daniel's classmates. We don't know that. But we do know that these were the only guys, these four, Daniel and his three friends, who expressed a desire to observe the Jewish dietary laws. And you might say, wait a minute. Dietary laws. Like, after all you have been through as a young man, you want to draw your line in the sand on what you eat. <laughs> Sounds kind of trivial, doesn't it? Well, we're going to find out that it wasn't. Verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that they drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel must have established some kind of a good relationship with the, uh, the officials 
who had direct authority over him, especially this particular overseer. Well, actually, it's not Daniel. It's not just Daniel. Because we read in the next verse, and God gave Daniel favor. Where did the favor come from? Say, say three-letter word. Starts with a G. Capital G. God. And God gave Daniel favor. And God gave Daniel what? Compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God can do this. And why do these th- good things happen? Maybe you've, you've gone through your life and said, why do these good things even happen to me? I don't deserve. Have you ever had stuff happen to you in life and you said, I don't deserve this? Well, you don't. And I don't. And it's not us. It's God. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, well, okay, good idea, but here's the deal. I fear my lord, the king. You know the one who slaughters everybody? That guy, Nebuchadnezzar. He assigns your food and your drink. Like He did this. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the other youths who are eating that food of your own age? Like, that could happen, Daniel. And then what? So you would endanger my head before... I mean, good idea, love you and everything, but... Notice, have you noticed that Daniel, and as you read on, Daniel doesn't rebel. Physically rebel. He did not rebel against the restrictions that these cruel captors have placed on him. Instead, he courteously requested permission to abstain, and then, having received the same kind of reply, a nice, kind reply, requested permission, um, and that was a negative response, Daniel offers uh, a more positive alternative. He says, okay, well, if that doesn't work, how about this? And then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, okay, here's, here's what we do. Let's test your servants for 10 days. Just give me 10 days. And let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who do eat the king's food be observed by you. Compare. Compare and contrast after 10 days. That's all I'm asking. And deal with your servants according to what you see. If it doesn't work out, fine. Daniel's saying, let's work together on this. Let's work together on this. I'm not hearing much of that. Between two cultures that could not have been farther apart. So Daniel proposes a vegetarian diet. And those of you who are vegetarians, and I ask you to put your hand up, um, don't go off on me on this, okay? Just, just don't, not yet. It's debatable whether just omitting meat and wine from your diet would normally result in an obviously outward better health just after 10 days. It's debatable. I've heard from others it's true, but I don't know. Are you willing to try it? (laughs) I don't see anybody going, yeah. Maybe Daniel was just relying on God. It was a reasonable request. It's only 10 days. What harm could happen? And he was expecting God to show up and do the miraculous. Because it's only 10 days. And by the way, the Hebrew word that's in most of your translations, it's been translated as vegetables. It really means 
things sowed. So that includes uh, all the grains and all the bread. Yes, not just vegetables, just in case you were wondering. So look at this. So he listened to them, this, this chief guy. He listened to them in this matter. He's still taking a huge risk, and he tested them for 10 days. Daniel's character and his attitude receives a favorable response when he proposes this 10-day test. But you and I know it was Yahweh. It was Yahweh pulling the strings. It was Yahweh making things happen. It was Yahweh's will that was being performed on this day, and we're going to see why for the next 65 years, why this was so important. Right from the start in chapter 1, we get the indication of God's sovereignty. God moved the overseer's heart, right? Or are some of you still not convinced? No, I think Daniel was a really nice guy. Notice 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 to 50, where hundreds of years before this event, King Solomon, the third king of Israel, he prays to God before the nation. That is dedication, his inauguration. And he reminds everyone of what God said to his dad, David, that God would do if the people messed up. Listen to this. This is, I think it's just wonderful how Scripture connects after hundreds of years. If they sin against you, this is what God said, and of course, Solomon adds, for there is no one who does not sin. <laughs> so it's not if they sin against you, it's what? Yeah, it's when. Are you, we're all familiar with this? Okay, good. We can move on. And if they do sin and you are angry with them, when, when you sin, what would make God angry? If you didn't repent. If you sin and repent, God is pleased with your repentance, not with your sin. But if you sin and you persist in your sin and you don't repent and you know you should repent and you know this was wrong and then you thumb your nose in the face of a holy God, he's going to be angry and there's going to be discipline. If they sin against you for there is no one who does not sin and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, oh, wait a minute, this is what's happening to Daniel. So that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far or near, it doesn't matter, they're taken away. Yet if they turn their heart in the, in the land to which they have been carried captive and they repent and they plead with you in the land of their captors saying we've sinned and we've acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and they pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city you have chosen and the house that I have built, for your name, and you know what we find Daniel doing every day, three times a day for the next 65 years? Praying to God with the windows of his room open towards Jerusalem. Repenting. Asking God to save the people. And then Solomon says, here's what you said to my dad. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer, and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And there's a word here, and grant them what? Compassion. What did Daniel have given to him in chapter 1? Compassion. In the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. 
And that's what's going on in Daniel in 605 B.C., hundreds of years after God said this. And we'll see that that's what happened 70 years later from this date with all of the people of Israel in Babylon, and they get to go home. It's God who grants us favor. Do you pray on a daily basis that the church, that the children of God would receive favor from those around us? Just a question. Psalm 106, verse 45 and 46 says, For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. It's God's love. It's his loyal love that sustains us. It's not about us. It's about him. He caused them to be pitied by all those who, he, who held them captive. I pray that the church today would repent, that it would just get on its knees and quit being arrogant and self-centered and greedy and repent whenever it's needed, as needed, and that God would grant us favor with people, not so that we can be successful, but that we may have people who will now hear and believe the good news of Jesus Christ's death on the cross for their sins because that's all that really matters. And that's why we're here. Evidently, Dave, uh, Daniel believed that. <laughs> and he took the initiative with this decision. And his three friends, friends followed his lead. And take note, just take note here, that his decision was not to remain morally pure. I think he probably already was. I mean, that was just who he was. A morally upright, really, really good guy. The kind of guy that all you would want to marry your daughter. That's Daniel. But his decision was to remain ceremonially uh, pure. Ceremonial purity was something that concerned only the most faithful, dedicated Jew. Jews were to uh, be careful in their ceremony of, of purity, especially with what, what kind of food they ate and how it was prepared. And they would have been equally careful to preserve their, their moral and their ethical purity. Ceremony and morality are connected. Uh, there's, there's kind of a thing going on in our day where the, the ceremony and the ritual is being disconnected. It's like, that stuff's not important anymore. It just matters who we really are. Well, we learn here that they're connected. It wasn't just this mindless ritual it wasn't this going through the motions. Oh, it can become that in every one of our lives, and that's dangerous. But that's not what we're talking about here. It would be like, you know how once a month here at Grace Chapel we take communion? That's kind of a ceremony, right? It's a ritual. It's something that we do over and over again. It's directly connected to who we are. It's directly connected to our moral state before a holy God that we can even do that. It's because of the blood of Jesus Christ, which is one of the elements we take. It's like when we are baptized after a profession of our faith and salvation through immersion in water. Like, Rick, like Rick's going to be after the service today. You've got your family here. It's going to be awesome. That's a symbol it's a ceremonial symbol 
of the pure moral condition that God has graced us with through Jesus Christ. It's important. And Daniel wanted to please God in every aspect of his life. Not just the outward stuff, but the inward stuff, the the whole thing. He wanted it all. It's like Paul tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. I'll start reading in verse 5. He's speaking about the children of Israel who wandered in the desert for 40 years until that whole generation died because of their disobedience to God in moral, ethics, ceremonial, everything. Nevertheless, he said, Paul says, with most of them, those wandering Jews, God was not pleased. And you know the story. For they were overthrown in the wilderness, and we can learn from their failure. Because Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us. We need to learn from those who've gone before us. Don't be, um, that we might not desire evil like they did. Don't be idolaters. Don't put anything before God in your life as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down, they ate, they drank, they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Well, it's not a big deal, Pete. Yeah, well, 23,000 died in one day. It's a big deal. We must not put Jesus Christ to the test. Oh, I'm saved, so I can get away with lots of stuff because he'll never leave me or forsake me. Uh, It's an eternal salvation, so it really doesn't matter what I do. Well, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents. I don't want that. (laughs) Just saying. And you're like, well, I would never do any of those things. Look at the next one. Uh Uh-oh. Grumble. Have you ever grumbled? Everybody's looking down right now. I'm looking down right now. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. This is where we live. We all know this. Things aren't getting better. They are deteriorating over time. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, you really think you've got a handle on all this? Take heed lest he fall. There's no temptation that has uh, overtaken you that is not common to everybody else. And God is faithful. This is Daniel. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, that ability that comes from God, nothing about you or me. But with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape. That What kind of escape might it be? That you'll be able to endure it. It doesn't say the temptation is going to go away but you'll be able to deal with it. Therefore, my beloved, this is like the bookends of this whole passage, starts with idolatry, ends with idolatry. Don't go there. Flee from idolatry. And then Paul says, you know, I'm speaking to sensible people, right? Judge for yourselves if what I say is true. I mean, is this not something that you've already experienced in your own life? I have. Multiple times. These young men in Babylon face a a situation that's common to every one of us as Christians in America today. We we can choose to be a part of a crowd, and you pick whatever crowd. There's all kinds of crowds out there. There's on the left, there's on the right, there's in the middle. You just pick your crowd, and you can choose to be a part of that crowd. There's plenty to pick from, and submit to that 
crowds, peer pressure, and do whatever it is they're saying that you need to do to get ahead in life. Or you can do what you know would please God. Though it might involve some persecution. It could cost you advancement, opportunities, maybe even at your workplace. You might even lose some friends. And for Daniel and these three guys, it was probably going to be their life that they lost. And in verses 15 and 16, Daniel remains faithful to God through all of this. Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh. Is that right? Did I read that right? That if I am fatter in flesh, I'm actually better in appearance? I'm really liking Daniel. Are you, are you with me on this? <laughs> it's Hebrew, all right? all right? Fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food from vegetables. They probably ate a lot of bread. That's what I'm thinking. So the steward takes away the food and the wine from the king's table that they were to eat and drink and gave them vegetables. So God gave the young men better, healthier appearances by natural or supernatural means. We really don't know which. But the result of the test encouraged their supervisor to remove the food, and that's a key. Because these young men now triumph during pagan training, verses 17 through 20. For Daniel's faithfulness, God rewards Daniel with the blessing of not now having to physically resist the command of the king. Isn't that cool? And he gets to avoid all the great danger for himself and other people. It doesn't always work that way. But it did for Daniel here. 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Wow. They endured three years of indoctrination with pagan religion. Would you survive that at age 15? 15, 16, and 17. All you're getting is the culture's teaching indoctrination, and you've got to recite it, and you've, you've got to excel in it. Could you survive that? Learning the language and the history of a people is one of the best ways to absorb the worldview of that people. Nebuchadnezzar was seeking to assimilate these young men so he could use them in the future. He wanted to make them thoroughly Babylonian, but God is greater than all of this. <clears throat> and what we read and what we see in the next chapters is that these four men were able to take in all that Babylonian training and culture and, and superstition and spiritualization and, and all, those, all that stuff and all of its presuppositions about how the world was created and, and, and why we are what we are and how the spiritual and supernatural world work and not only live and function within that, and not only, as we'll see, become the leaders of people who believed that, but stand completely for the things of God in spite of that. This, like, this is really big. 
like Moses in the courts of Pharaoh, like Paul being raised and steeped in Jewish tradition of, of the Pharisees. Daniel had an excellent educational background, and it had nothing to do <laughs> with the Bible and what it really says. He had an unusually brilliant mind, we can assume that. And what God does is he adds a supernatural ability to understand visions and dreams. And we'll see why later on. Come back next week. But we have much to learn, don't we? You and I? Christians today, we have to live Christ and all that that means. And it's a lot. We got to do better at living Christ and all that means to the religions and all the cultures that are all around us. The world is at our doorstep. We don't have to get on a plane. We don't have to get on a boat. It's here for us to tell the good news of Jesus Christ too. Verse 18, and at the end of time, of that time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief eunuch brought in them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. So it was a personal one-on-one -on -one interview. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. God made Daniel supreme over the Babylonians. It's verse 21. It's the last, last verse we're going to look at. Now Daniel lived on until the first year of Cyrus the king. It's kind of weird if you're not into history. Like, what's that verse all about? Like, why, why insert that right here? Well, and I might, before we get to that, I might also say Daniel slept well at night because he did the right thing. Paul tells a young man named Timothy in chapter 1 of that book, 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20, that by them, the things I've just been telling you, you may wage a good warfare, because we're in a warfare. Holding faith and what? A good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. They don't have a good conscience. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexandra, who I handed over to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme God. You and I advance. We, we grow in the truth. We grow in our faith by maintaining a good conscience. This is what Daniel and the three guys did. And by, by the way, this King Cyrus, who's all of a sudden inserted into the story, he's not even a Babylonian. He, he's with the Medes and the Persians. He defeated the Babylonians. He was the king of the Medes and Persians. We'll get to that later in the book, but his first year that we're told about here was 538 B.C. And what time are we at now? 605 B.C. Oh, by the way, also the same year that King Cyrus decreed that the Jews get to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. And that took place in 537 B.C., for those of you taking notes. So Daniel's position as a government official a really high standing one, spanned 65 years at least. 65 years. So the decision he made at age 15 
by the grace of God, launched him into a political career into one of the greatest empires the world has ever known. So two dates bracket this first chapter. It started in 605 B.C., the year that Daniel was taken from his home and taken as a captive to the capital in Babylon. And the year it ends with is the day, the year his government career ended. So the content of this chapter that we've just looked at focuses on the key to Daniel's remarkable career. That's the point. What's the key? He purposed, he resolved to remain faithful to God. Even with what you and I might consider to be a relatively minor, trivial matter, what you eat. And God blessed that commitment God gave this already gifted and brilliant young man additional gifts and abilities and opportunities which were all used to further glorify God. This chapter introduces the rest of the book that you and I are going to get into. A book that contains amazing predictions that came true and have yet to come true that we're going to look at in as much detail as we can. But it also will present some situations that are different than this one, where compromise and working together is not possible. But you still take your stand, and the rest lies with God. How do we remain faithful to God in any and every situation that we're going to come into while under pagan dominion? Because that's where we live. Start by reading Daniel. You'll get a good idea. Would you rise with me? We're going to sing in response to this amazing first chapter that God has graced us with, and we're going to sing to our Heavenly Father together as one. Heavenly Father, we bow before you before we lift our hearts and our heads to you. You alone are worthy of all praise, of all glory, and of all honor. You, the great God, the Savior of our soul, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of our life now and until the end of our days, which you have numbered. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ who makes it all possible. Amen.